It's been good. It's been a good season, a Lent season of just focusing on Easter that's, that's coming every week, getting a little bit closer, getting a little bit closer, uh, listening to Matt during our announcement time and, and Rolly as she's reading this passage from our book. It, it just it brings me back a little bit to my journey. And when I committed this uh, right after our Ash Wednesday service, I wanted to be really good at reading this book that, that we've, we've encouraged our church to do. And uh, I found that as I'm reading the book and I'm, as I'm, as I'm in investing in my relationship with Jesus through this book and also the, the fasting that I'm choosing to do, Fasting is a little bit easier whenever you're focusing on, on Jesus in, in the midst of it all. But then spring break happened last week, and uh, I got behind. Uh, I took my book on vacation with me, of course, like any good follower of Jesus would do, right? I got my Bible, I got my book, and how many times did I open either of them? Probably not as much as I intended or should. Uh, but we, we made a lot of memories. Is that enough? No, I, I, I have been working this week to get back on track. And that's just my encouragement for us as a church that, man, we have, we're in week, we're starting week five of our Lent season. And if you find yourself off track, just like Matt said earlier, join me. Let's get back on the horse. Let's, let's, uh, let's get caught up and uh, continue to look at Jesus during this Lent season. Pray with me as we just enter into our, our time this morning as we dive into John chapter 12. God, I need you this morning. Uh, my heart is all over the place. Uh, it's, it's trusting you, but it's also thinking about a, a lot of other things that aren't related at all and, and ultimately don't even matter. But God, that's where my heart is this morning. And, and I just ask that you just come in and clarify my heart and, and um, clarify my mind and be my thoughts. And God, I just pray that you help me speak clearly as you've given me this opportunity this morning just to, to bring your word to our church. Spirit, I ask that you come in and that you would fall on the hearts of every single one of us, including myself in this room, that we would see ourselves in the text, that we would be challenged to um, surrender more of our lives to you, and we can leave this place having hope. Yes, being convicted of sin, but having hope, Jesus, that, that you are um, the one who's conquered all of sin. And I just ask that you would just lead us and guide us and, again, be my voice. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we started this series called The Road to Easter, and um, what we're doing in the midst of this, uh, this series is we're spending three weeks investing in John chapter 12. And so uh, there's a reason why we picked John chapter 12. It wasn't one of those, hey, let's pray, open our Bible, and figure out what chapter we're going to plant on, though God can speak in that way. That's not the way that we've chosen to do it. John chapter 12 is actually pretty intentional with, with the choice. And so if you're familiar with John's gospel, the first 11 chapters, what John does in the midst of that is he takes seven miracles of Jesus, he explains them, and what he's doing in the midst of highlighting those seven miracles is proving that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, that's the whole point of what John is driving towards. And then we get to John chapter 12, which is a pivotal point inside of, of this book, where in John 13, what we start seeing is the last hours of Jesus' life, the last 24, sorry, 36 to 48 hours of Jesus' life. And so Jesus is heading towards the cross after John chapter 12. So John 12 really serves as this pivotal turning point inside the book. And, and we look 
looked at, we started it last week looking at the first couple of sections. We're planted right in the middle of it today with the, the intent of we're on the road to Easter. We want to see Jesus for all of who he is. And so we just ask that, that you join us in the midst of all this. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 20. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to start reading in, I'm sorry, 12 don't want to confuse you too much. Roger gave me a big head shake like you are wrong. Yeah, okay, I see you. Um, John chapter 12, we're starting in verse 20, and we're going to end up reading all the way to verse 36, but um, just put a bookmarker there. We'll end up there in a couple of minutes. Before we get there, um, just got this thought for you I want to throw out. Most people at some point of time in their lives end up asking the question, Am I good enough? Let that sit. Most people, at some point in time in their life, end up asking the question, am I good enough? I would argue that this starts in us whenever we're kids. Once we get to that age where we can start having coherent thoughts for ourselves, what we strive to do is to please our parents. Right? We start making decisions. Maybe you don't ever have the conscious question. Maybe it's subconscious somewhere. But we as human beings are always asking that question, am I good enough? Do my parents love me enough because of who I am and what I do? What can I do to get their attention if I'm not getting it in the way that I want to? And then we transition from kids into adulthood. And this question doesn't go away whenever we, um, when we, when we grow up. As we enter adulthood, when we find a spouse, or we find a job, or we just do life, this question tends to creep in over and over again. Am I good enough? There are so many ways to ask, to ask this question, and there are so many ways to fight through the emotions of, what this, of where this leads to. We end up asking questions like, do my parents actually love me? Does my spouse still love me? Am I competent enough in my job and what I do? Or am I making the right decisions for my family? I mean, we can go on and on and on. Again, I'm going to the, back to this point that I, I believe that almost every single one of us, if not all of us, have ended up in this point of asking this question. Am I good enough? If you walk through a season of life asking this, uh, one or more of these questions, then you know that these are extremely heavy questions. How you answer these questions has the ability to speak into your identity. Now, I'm not saying that's okay. We're going to go there later, but just walk with me and understand that as we answer that deep, heavy question, it has the ability to speak in our identity, what we think about ourselves, who we think we are, what really defines us. We start thinking to ourselves, am I not good enough? Am I unlovable? Am I unable to make any right decision? So I got a story to... because. I'm an emotional person at my core, so I understand this question. I I think I've I've gone through this question many, many different ways. 
And one of the most memorable times in my life that I could think about this was back whenever I was in college. Now, I do understand that this is a serious question that lots of us walk through. And the story I'm about to tell you was a very serious time in my life, uh, though the way it's going to come across is very comic, so I hope that you can laugh at my experiences, but realize the, the, the deep pain that I was walking through in the midst of all that, even in the humor of, of what comes out. Um, so I think back all the way back to my, my first stint of college. Now, I have to say my first stint of college is because I was on the 10-year plan to graduate with my undergrad degree, and no, I was not aiming to be any kind of physician or anything. That was just my journey. It's funny when people hear that about me, they're like, um, I get it. You partied your way through college, right? You just couldn't buckle down. Whenever they hear that I get, uh, that I got one semester's worth of credit in three years, they're like, I got you. And I'm like, not what you really think. I loved Jesus way too much to actually go to class. That was my experience. I'm going to, yeah, you're like, wait, what? Uh, Yeah. I'm coming across like I'm confident in this decision. Uh, the 10-year journey will tell you it wasn't the best decision that I ever made. But, the, I mean, really, that, that's what it was, is I found a, a group of guys and girls. I found this, um, this, this ministry on campus that I could invest my time into, and it was more important for me to hang out with those guys and to be a part of what was going on there than actually to go to class. So, yeah, it, it, it took me a while to get through, but I got through. Um, I developed a, a really close group of guy friends who really loved Jesus. And these guys were actually extremely pivotal in my journey and in my uh, relationship with Jesus because they spoke a lot into me. There were, there were 10 guys, 10 of us who got to be really, really close. And um, many of them were older, but they grafted me and a couple of my friends into, uh, into our group. Again, one of the most influential ty- uh, peoples in my life. It wasn't perfect, though. And remember, I'm a feeler at my core. Okay, here we go. My sophomore year, uh, I ended up convincing one of my best friends from high school to come join me at the college that I was going to. And he jumped on board, he visited, and he was like, yeah, I'm in. So he came to school with me. And so uh, my friend group ended up grafting my friend in just like they did me. It was the perfect storm until one day I noticed that my best friend from high school was actually hanging out with my best friend from college, and then there was the perfect storm of them becoming best friends, and this feeler at the core ended up becoming the third wheel, you know, like feeling extremely left out, not knowing what to do. Judge me if you want, but that's exactly uh, where I, where I was, um, Give me grace as I continue the story. Again, God created me a feeler, so let's just see where this goes next. Uh, we met every single week as an accountability group, uh, me and, and my friends. And, um, and then my, my, my two best friends ended up developing this special language where they would just always talk and laugh and get along. Again, third wheel was like getting angry around the circle. And, and there was a really strong feeling one time whenever we were hanging out at a Bible study accountability group where I just felt so overwhelmed with this idea of I no longer fit. These guys don't accept me. I'm not part of them anymore. Who am I in the midst of of this group? It's better for me that I just leave. And so they closed in prayer, and I thought that that was the perfect time to be able to sneak out. And so I I sneak out. I'm like, I got to flee from this situation because my my heart is just, oh, it's screaming at me. So I sneak out the door, and I I get about five minutes down the road where I'm walking back to campus because these guys were living off campus. And just like any good romance novel, um, 
my best friend notices that I was gone. Steven, the guy from college that I was telling you about, notices that I was gone. He gets in his truck and he drives down the road and he whips his car in front of me as I'm walking down the road. I'm like, no, you just go. No, you just, no, I didn't really. That's not really, that's not really how it all went down. But that's the way I feel in my heart as I'm retelling the story, right? Um, but, but he does, like he gets in his truck and he whips around and he gets out of his truck. He's like, Jordan, what is going on? Why did you leave? And I just unleash my heart on him. Man, you and Justin, I just, I, I just feel so left out. And we had a DTR. You guys know what a DTR is? Defining the relationship. So we, we were good. We hugged it out. We were just fine. And we moved on. The next 18 years of my life in college, uh, we were, no, I'm just kidding. We, we were really, really good. Um, no, but, but, but I look back at the time, and, and really this question of who am I, am I good enough for you guys? Like, I thought I was, but then I started feeling really confused about the whole thing. That was a really real moment for me. We all have moments when we start wondering if we're good enough. Some of the personalities of us in this room, as we're even hearing these stories, or you're hearing my story, um, when this question arises in your life, what, maybe what you tend to do, what your personality drives you to do is to buckle down and to work harder and to prove to those around you that you are good enough. And there are other personalities, probably a lot like mine of us in this room, that whenever you, you hear this question, when it creeps up in our lives, we end up going to the corner and we end up crawling uh, uh, into a, a, a ball or a fetal position or something like that, and we start spiraling out of control emotionally, wondering what's wrong with us. And then there's everything in between. I think we all get there at some point, a time or another, have you ever asked God, am I good enough? Again, some of the personalities, you work harder to prove to God that you are a good follower of Jesus. Just don't let go of me. Maybe you'll never say it that way, but that is our bent and our personalities. While other of us, when we ask God that very same question, end up like Adam and Eve in the garden and hiding from God not wanting to address it as we're hearts, our hearts are spiraling out of control just in curiosity of where we stand in relationship with God. How you behave when this question arises is key. The other side of that coin is what you believe when that question arises is key. I want that question to be center of where we're diving in this text because i I want us to see something of what Jesus speaks into. In our text today, we're going to see Jesus interacting with two different people. There's the Greeks and there's the crowd. The Greeks are going to ask a specific question to Jesus and he's going to answer. And then the crowd's going to ask a specific question to Jesus and he's going to answer. And I, what I see the answer driving us towards is this idea of, am I good enough? So let's understand the context as we're diving into John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. Last week, we ended up with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? So these palm branches are being put down in front of him. This is historically known as Palm Sunday. It's the week before he dies uh, on the cross, so he's entering into Jerusalem. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he goes into this Jewish festival, 
where he finds himself. And that's where st- today's story picks up, is Jesus is at this festival. Most likely, it's inside the temple courts, so we can kind of picture Jesus inside the temple courts with Jewish people from all over who have traveled for, from afar to be able to come to this festival. So there's lots of people hanging out in this area. And then the first group of people approach the disciples with a question for Jesus. And what I want us to see um, is, is the Greeks' question. Before we go much further, let's understand who these Greeks are. These Greeks, um, we don't know a ton about them, but just by definition, we know that the Greeks are Gentiles. These are not Jewish people. These are not people who grew up as the chosen nation of God. But something else we do know about them is they're at this Jewish festival. So somehow they know, and, uh, they know about Yahweh God, and they have come to worship God. We don't know the extent of their, of their relationship or how they know God. There's lots of different um, thoughts out there of how they possibly came to know of God. That's not really important. We just need to know that these are Gentile people, not Jews, who are God-fearing people, most likely have heard and seen of Jesus, and they have a question for Jesus. Not a question. They want to interact with Jesus. And what I want us to see is this question that they ask is, can I come and see Jesus? Let's start in verse 20 of John chapter 12, the first couple verses. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who were from Bethsaida and in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Okay, let's stop here just for a second. And what I want us to see is, um, is that these Greeks did not go directly to Jesus, possibly because they were Gentiles, and they didn't know if they could actually approach Jesus, but they wanted to come and see Jesus. If you start unpacking a little bit about what they were asking for, they wanted to come interview him. They wanted to come have a conversation with him. We don't know exactly why, but play into the context here a little bit. I think that they've heard a ton about who this guy is, and they just want to come and check him out for themselves and say, can I actually approach this guy? Can I come before his presence? They felt so uncomfortable that they didn't want to go to Jesus directly. What they wanted to do is ask the disciples, ask Philip, hey, what do you think about this? You think this is cool if I do it? Philip, not knowing the answer, goes to talk to his buddy Andrew, maybe because he didn't want to get in trouble with Jesus. And so he's like, Andrew, how about you get in trouble with Jesus? Because I'll ask you what you think. And then they both ended up going to Jesus. And um, Jesus, in a very Jesus-like fashion, did not give a simple yes or no answer. He actually gives a story, and um, let's just dive in. So, verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, asking if these Greeks can come near, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, my father will honor them. At this point, Andrew and Philip are saying to Jesus, so that's a yes? (laughs) It's just funny the, the way that Jesus does things, right? 
And if you just read, if you're just reading through the Gospels and you see that, to me, it's, a, it's extremely confusing. Like, what is Jesus saying? Why can't he just give a yes or no answer? But as we unpack this, I think we're going to see something so much deeper that Jesus is saying. The story that, that, he, um, that he has as his questions come to him continues. And we're going to look in verse 27. And what Jesus does in verse 27 is he begins praying out loud. And then the interactions continue. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but this is for this purpose that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He knows what's coming. His death is coming, and his heart is troubled, and he's interacting with God. He's saying, it doesn't matter what I feel. Father, you glorify your name. Verse 28, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that they heard a thunder. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Notice that. A voice came from heaven. The people around Jesus couldn't tell what this voice said, couldn't interpret it, couldn't figure it out at all. And we have the crowd and we have the others. I think that's really intentional, saying who is inside this courtyard The crowd could mean everyone, but John wanted to pull out two different types of people. There's the crowd and there's the other people. The crowd only heard the thunder, couldn't even make out that there was anything positive inside this voice at all. But the other people said it sounded like an angel was speaking. I'm going to make the argument that the crowd, which they're going to come up in a minute who asked the second question, I think Jesus is, or I think Paul, uh, John, sorry, the person writing this book, I think John is referencing them as people who are not following Jesus, who don't want anything to do with Jesus. That is the crowd. And then the others, people like the disciples or like the Greeks who want to understand exactly who Jesus is, hear something a little bit different. But we'll come back to that later. Verse 30. So this, God speaks, the people hear a miraculous noise, and Jesus answers them, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now that the rulers of this world will be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. This is Jesus' answers to the Greek people who've come to ask this question of them. What I want us to see is in this answer, Jesus talks about his hour coming. My hour has now come. This is extremely important because before this point, anytime Jesus did a miracle or anytime Jesus did something or someone questioned him, it was normal for Jesus to say, my hour has not yet come. And then he would continue on to his response. We look at the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament from Genesis to Zechariah to Malachi, all the way through, we see God doing something huge, pointing to Jesus, and Jesus comes onto the scene, my hour has not yet come yet until this point in the text, now Jesus makes it really clear, my hour has come. What does it come for? My hour has come for me to come and die. It's coming soon. And everything will come to a head at that point. Look at what Jesus said in verse um, 24. 
He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. There's a wheat shaft, right, with seeds at the top of this wheat shaft. If that wheat shaft continues living and never dies, the seeds will never fall to the earth and continue to reproduce. The wheat shaft must die so that the seeds can be planted so that life can continue. That shaft must die for life to continue. Jesus is pointing to that. My hour has come. I must go die so that life can be found. This is part of his answer to the Greeks. But it doesn't stop with just Jesus. It continues on about us as well. We'll pause that just for a second. So, can I come and see Jesus? The story continues. The voice comes. And I think there's something very significant in this voice, or Jesus' response to this voice from heaven as he's finishing up this thought on can the Gentiles come near to Jesus. Jesus said, the voice has come not for your sake, but mine. Oh, sorry, uh, has come for your sake, not mine. And there's three things that I want us to see here is this. The meaning of this voice, he starts in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. With my death comes the judgment of this world. Here's what we got to understand what Jesus is saying in the midst of this. It is time for the judgment of the world to begin. God will condemn every sin ever committed. And he is coming to condemn every sin that will be committed. Every sinner, the judgment and wrath of God is coming upon every single one of us. This is coming with the hour. But the story doesn't stop with just this judgment falling. It continues on. He says, now will the rulers of this world be cast out. Thinking about his death, the judgment of God is falling. The wrath of God is falling. But in the midst of this judgment, God will cast out Satan. As far as the east is from the west, he will no longer have dominion over anyone Ever again, the prophecy given in Genesis 3.15, right when uh, Eve chose sin over, over God and Adam came right along with her and God told all of us in Genesis 3.15 that it was the serpent who led us astray, but God's going to smash the head of the serpent. This is that time. Evil will go away. The ruler of this world, which is Satan, will be cast out. And... The third thing I want us to see in verse 32, and, and I, when I am lifted up, and I, when I am resurrected from the dead, will draw all people to myself. I'm coming to die. 
In my death, the wrath of God is coming from heaven. I'm casting Satan out as far as the east is from the west. And when I die, I will draw all people to myself. What Jesus is saying is that the wrath of God is falling on me as I give myself to the cross. And the question of can you come and see Greek people, Gentile people, can you come to me? There is a time coming right now when the hour is here that the answer emphatically is yes. Yes, you can come to me. Yes, you can see me. Yes, you can come have a conversation with me. It's not about Jews and Gentiles anymore. I am doing something far more greater in your presence than you were ever able to understand right now. I can imagine the question of these people as they pursue Andrew and as they pursue Philip Am I good enough to come stand before Jesus? Can I make my way there? And Jesus, in telling this story, is not directly but indirectly in a very clear way saying, absolutely, you are good enough to come be with me. A time has now come when the giant gap between sinful man and a holy God will be closed together. Again, no such thing as Jew or Gentile. We are, we are saved under the grace of Jesus, cross, uh, Jesus Christ. Because of the cross, there is no gap between sinner and saint. It is the good news of the gospel of what Jesus is doing. I love Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. It says to us here, and I think this applies so well to us as we read this and as we see this, as we try to identify with these Greek people, that he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross for you and for me, we don't have condemnation anymore. Can I come to you? Um, am I good enough? Absolutely you are. Come to me. Verse 2 of Romans chapter 8 says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Again, that gap, that chasm is gone. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according, uh, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Man, can I come and see? Am I good enough? Am I worthy enough to stand in the presence of God himself through Jesus Christ? Emphatically, yes. Come. Rest, be in my presence. What does this mean for us as we see this? As we identify with this question, what does this mean for us? Because of what Jesus is about to do, the pathway to salvation is made very clear. As Jesus said about himself in John chapter 12, verse 24, the seed must die so that it could be raised to life again. I must die so that life can be found. He continues on, and if you look at verse 25 of John chapter 12, it says, whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. If anyone who serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What does this mean for us? 
just as Jesus had to come and die so that we can find life, the same is meant for us. We must die so that we may find life. We must surrender ourselves to the authority of Jesus when we give ourselves to Jesus, when we commit to Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. It's not just a posture or a thing that we do or we say. We surrender to his authority in our life. We come and we die just like Jesus did. When we surrender ourselves, we give something up in our lives. We give up self-reliance. We give up fears. We give up our basic human desires to follow Jesus. In our self-reliance, we are the author of our lives, and we give that up to say, you are the ultimate authority. We are no longer. As we die, we give up our fears. There are so many things in this world that we can be so fearful of, but 2 Timothy chapter 1, 7 says to us that for God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. It is not fear that should drive us. It is something so much greater. It is Jesus that drives us. We're giving up our basic human desires to follow Jesus. Our basic human desires to make us, number one, to make this world about you and about me. We're good at that. But Jesus says, you aren't, number one, I am. Hearing this makes Galatians 2.20 come to life. I memorized this as a kid, and it comes back to me over and over and over again. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. I want to have just a real conversation real quick, just for a minute. Remember how our band began our time today, making the statement that we all ask the question, am I good enough? Don't let anyone speak into your identity other than Jesus himself. When we wrestle through that question and we let people speak into our identity, we start going into some kind of black hole spiral where we don't know which way is up anymore. Your identity is what defines you. How you answer that question is not what defines you. Am I good enough? We all have strengths in this room, and we all have weaknesses in this room. Every single one of us has things that we're good at, and every single one of us have things that we're growing in. And it tends to be the weaknesses and the things that we're growing in that we really start spiraling out of control with this idea of, am I really good enough? Can I do this? Is this something that I have really royally screwed up? When you're weak, you need to grow. It's not your identity. Maybe it's your blind spot, but it's not your identity. Maybe you lack character. That's not your identity. Your identity is so much more than that. These weaknesses don't define you. They just show you where we need to grow and where we need to change. Jesus makes it explicitly clear that if you are his, then he defines you. And as he defines you, he sees you just as we've described, covered by the blood of Jesus, forgiven and in his presence because of the wrath he bore on the cross for you and me. 
That's the first question, and probably the most substantial of the questions that we see in John chapter 12. I want us to see quickly the, the second question that the crowd asks Jesus. These two stories blend a little bit, so I'm going to reread some of the things that we just saw. But uh, follow with me in John chapter 12, verse 27. Again, this is where Jesus is, is praying, he's crying out to God. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Notice the crowd. The crowd that stood there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Verse 34, so the crowd answered him. We have heard it from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? That's the question that they're throwing out. And what we need to see, there's a little bit of context here that makes this a little clear, but if you go too fast, you'll blow right past it. These, the, the, the crowd is not genuinely wanting to know who the Son of Man is. They're not really curious at all. But what they're hearing Jesus say is that I have come to die. My hour has come and I will die and everything that the, these Jewish people have understood is that the Messiah will come. The Old Testament Messiah that has been prophesied will come and will be the king. And they have this thought in their mind that he will be an earthly king that will rule forever, that will always be on this earth. So how in the world, they're thinking, can you, Jesus, be the Messiah if you say you're going to die? Who is this son of man is the way that they're actually asking it. Who do you think you are? And Jesus he doesn't answer them directly, but he actually says some really um, encouraging things for us as we see it. I think it's a warning for this heart. Verse 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among us for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Here's the warning Jesus is saying. These people who are questioning him, instead of entertaining their questioning about his Messiahship, if you will, getting into that argument, he just has a gentle encouragement for them. See the encouragement, and I have something I want you to see in the midst of this as well. He says to them, I am the light. Everything that I said that I am, I am that. I am saying it again. I'm confirming I am the, I am the light. I'm not going to be here much longer. Walk with me. Walk with me as I continue in my last hours. Don't be consumed by the darkness at all. What I want you to see in here is that Jesus is inviting the people of the crowd to continue to stand in his presence. These doubters, he's saying, walk with me. I am the light, don't, don't miss me, come be with me. I mean, this is the amazing thing about the posture of Jesus, is he's not only welcoming us who want to be in his presence, those people who are rejecting him, his heart is, I want you with me as well. 
but we know the pride and the arrogance of the crowd will lead them not to heed his warning. They will be consumed by darkness. I think like any good horror movie out there, the scariest things happen when? In the darkness. In the dark. Jesus is saying, don't miss who I am. If you miss who I am, when I'm gone, your heart will continue to grow harder. Don't be consumed by the darkness. I'm going to close with this last point. What's our takeaway from all of this today? As we see the Greeks and as we see the crowd and Jesus' interaction with this overarching question of, can I come in? The question is asked, am, am I worth it? Jesus, am I worth it to you? His answer is absolutely, you are worth it. Now, now that you're in the presence of Jesus, what do you do? When you finally find confidence in who you are in your relationship with Jesus, now you're standing face to face. Okay, we're here. Now we have that awkward silence. What happens now? What do we do when I get to this place? Honestly, I can't answer that for you exactly. But what I can point to is what he just said to us, is that our posture must be that of someone who has come and died and surrendered ourselves to him so that we can find life in him as well. This week, what I'd love for you to do is meditate on that verse in Galatians 2.20. Write that down in your journal or on your bulletin or something. And what I would challenge every single one of us to do is to take the, the words found in Galatians 2.20 and just read it over and over again. And not just read it, but pray through it. Pray over it. Ask God, what are you saying in the midst of this? The words aren't difficult, but let's just spend some time in the midst of these words of saying, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but it is Christ that lives in me. Pray through that. What does that mean for me? And then ask yourself a follow-up question. Where have I not been crucified in Christ? Where have I taken things for myself? Where have I not just totally sold myself out to who Jesus is? Where are you in your self-reliance? Where are you? Are you someone who lets your fear drive you? What are you holding too tightly to that has become a war between you and Jesus? I would love for us this week to just interact with Jesus in this way and saying, okay, I believe what you said, that I'm good enough to be in your presence. Now that I'm here, speak to me, mold me, shape me, Help me come and die so that I can find more life in you. What would that look like for every single one of us? As we close our time together today, what I want us, you to remember is the words found in, in Hebrews chapter 12, that it was the joy set before Jesus to go to the cross for you. This road to Easter though it was painful, physically painful, for our Savior. 
though he got to a point where he said to Jesus as he's in, or said to God as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it is your will, take this cup from me. This is not something I'm looking forward to because I know what it's going to be like, but it's my joy to go there because I know exactly what it's going to accomplish. And sinful humanity cannot find life without me accomplishing this, God, for your name and for your glory here on this earth. Don't let us lose the sight of what God wants us to see and get of him in the midst of what Jesus has done. Jesus found life through his death, and he offers the same to us, life, as we strive to learn to die to our ways every single day. I want to pray. I want to invite the worship team up, and we're going to continue worshiping as we close our time out. God, I'm as I've said a couple of different times this morning, I've found myself at this place of just being curious where I stand with you. And beyond that, I, I, I'm curious where I stand with friends and peers and my spouse and my kids. Like I, I find myself in this worry cycle because that's just part of my nature and how you created me. God, and I recognize that and I confess it because my identity is not found, though I value all those people in my life, my identity is not found in them. It is found in what you, you say I am. And Jesus, I ask for myself and every single person in this room that as we struggle through that emotionally, that you would allow us to let go and allow you to speak into our identity so that we can behave appropriately in these relationships with complete confidence in who you are in our lives. And for other of us in this room that don't have that strong emotional pull or draw, that just have the, the tendencies to buckle down and just keep proving and working harder, I pray that you would just let their white knuckle grip, let go a little bit, and allow them to rest in your presence and know that you are near, accepting exactly who they are. Again, wanting to grow our strengths, I'm sorry, grow our weaknesses. You, God, have the ability to do that, and you alone this week, grow us into more of your likeness. Help us understand what it means to come and die as we rest in Galatians 2.20 with the story that we just heard found in John chapter 12. God, thank you for your word and what it means to us. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.